1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan.
0: Cass, we are back. And we are back with part two of our conversation about the gender-bending fashion exhibition with Michelle tolini Finnemore. And Michelle is the Penny Vinnick Curator of Fashion Arts at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, where her groundbreaking exhibition, Gender Bending Fashion, is currently on view now until August 25th, 2019. And last week, we spoke to her about the longstanding legacy of women in gender bending and their fight for comfort and equality. But today, we're going to turn our attention to The
1: Gentleman. Yes, so if you haven't already caught part one, you may wish to do so because we also set up the history of gender bending as far back as ancient Egypt, as well as addressing the matter of some terminology pertaining to gender studies. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us again on Dressed.
0: Michelle, it goes without saying that the manner in which menswear-inspired styles have recently, or well, not even recently, historically (laughs) infiltrated millions of women's closets, doesn't exactly have an inverse equivalent in mainstream menswear um, because mainstream menswear has really been ruled by the three-piece suit for more than a century. Do you have any insights as to why perhaps the suit has remained such an enduring silhouette in terms of menswear?
2: Yes, I get that question quite a bit
0: um, because I
2: do feel like in terms of, you know, exactly as you say, this idea of the inverse equivalent, um, don't have men taking on aspects of women's wear as, you know, in the same, to the same degree. So when I think about the history of the typical business suit for men, it has become the symbol par excellence of kind of Western patriarchal society and culture, right? And success even. And success. Yes, for sure. And even if you look globally, a lot of other countries In other, you know, you look at the UN gatherings and you have men in the standard Western male suit from all over the world. Right. So um, so why, you know, why is it so powerful? Why is it so entrenched? And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with really who's in power. Um, We had talked a little bit about kind of post French Revolution and this idea of expressing democratic ideals through dress. And so that comes with the rise of the middle class. um, Men, in workplace positions in which they really wanted a uniform. And so really it kind of begins in the early 19th century and it stays with us even today, you know, into the 21st century, because it has become such a powerful standard uniform for a patriarchal Culture, Um, so I think it's you know a lot of it is related to to that, and um, you know I think about you know I have a small section on men in skirts and how hesitant you know men have been in Western society for certain to take on that aspect of women's wear. I don't know if it will ever fully take off, but I did see a man in a utila kilt. In North Station in Boston the other day, so I was um, pretty impressed by that.
0: Oh, this is a question that I was going to ask you a little bit later, but but what what is it about the skirt that contemporary Western society finds so shocking? Because I mean, if you really break this down to its most basic, it's just a piece of cloth wrapped around the waist of a body. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, for sure. <laughs> but it's but it's laden with so much more meaning, right?
2: Yes, yeah, 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 it is. It definitely is. And I think, again, it's a power issue, right? And when you think about who's in power in most of our, you know, in Western culture, um, you wouldn't really want to take on the garment of women who have less power, right? So I think that it just, uh, it's just so, so deeply. Um, embedded in our psyche in a way and kind of our Western psyche that it's really hard for men to kind of do the inverse. But when you think of non-Western culture, you know, think of the kimono in Japan, um, saris in India, um, Mm -hmm. caftan, caftans in the Middle East. And so uh, Indonesia, you know, sarongs. And so, you know, it, it really is very much a Western story. And yet, when we think about um, somebody like Young Thug wearing that Alessandro Trincone dress, it also has its connections to kind of a non-Western idea of male dress. Um, and then when you move into the 1960s and 70s and you see unisex attire, you see a great interesting caftans, Middle Eastern style caftans, uh, which, you know, someone like Rudy Gernreich, who. Love. You love, right? And who's hugely important in terms of the way we think of uh, unisex dress in fashion history? You know, he was directly referencing this. You know that men and women were both wearing these robed garments in non-Western culture. And there are so many designers who really did try to kind of push against that binary. Uh, designers like Jacques Estorel. I have a small video playing of one of his collections in which he presented unisex attire. And it's, you know, women and men in these, you know, beautiful caftans. And then he, as early as the late 1950s, early 1960s, was introducing this concept of men wearing skirts. And again, it didn't really take off. It was considered kind of novel and somewhat comical, but he, ended up training, you know, the next generation of designers and Jean-Paul Gaultier trained with Esterel for a bit of time. And he has become, you know, since the 80s has been introducing this idea of men wearing
1: skirts.
0: Yeah, I feel like there's a, a lot of designer, menswear designers that are like continuing furthering this dialogue. You know, of course, of course, we have Tom Brown, and Rick Owens, um, they continue to to have this discussion in terms of their designs. So, and also not to bring up Elizabeth Haas again. That's but okay. I love Elizabeth <laughs> Haas. <laughs> she in the 30s, uh, in one of her books, kind of tongue in cheek, wrote a chapter called Men in Skirts. But um, eventually in 1970, her and Gernreich actually had an exhibition at FIT where she kind of fulfilled that prophecy, like you know, 30-some years later, and she actually designed skirts for men. That's fantastic. Yeah.
2: It's amazing. And again, I think that what you see surfacing is the stories of these very brave individuals who are continually pushing against convention and really questioning, you know, why are these, you know, kind of fashion mores in place? Why are we so embedded in them? And I think that that's really... Such an interesting question. And, you know, I include the work of Walter Van Dong. I love, also, big fan. So fantastic. And, you know, in 2000, he did a collection called Gender Question Mark, which really, it opens, the whole collection opens with these words flashing on a screen that really question the forces that create our contemporary notions of gender. And, you know, it's really like, is it, you know, is it marketing? Is it... Um, is it cultural? Is it social? You know, he has always tried to push against those binaries and continues to do that in what I think is a really creative and wonderful way.
0: So one of the ways that historically, besides silhouette, so we're talking about men in skirts, one of, one of the other ways that historically that pushback against the binary in terms of fashion and dress has happened is in terms of color, Yes. Mm-hmm. Would you give us a quick rundown on key moments about the gendering and ungendering of color? We, we have touched on this in the past on Dressed, but...
2: <laughs> yes, I'm sure. So the exhibition, the gender-bending fashion, is really, I consider it a bit of an outgrowth of a smaller-scale exhibition I did uh, in 2014 called Think Pink, which was you know specifically looking at the notions... Uh, the notion of why pink is considered a feminine color. And so, you know, when we think back again, we think back kind of broad sweep of history, you look back to the 18th century and you see men wearing pastels and florals and lace and embroidered garments. Um, and then again, a post revolutionary period, the hegemony of the sober, dark business suit by the latter half of the 19th century. Um, And then we see this great gendering of color uh, surfacing kind of late 19th century, early 20th century, and these associations of pink for girls and blue for boys, which really starts in kind of early 20th century and sticks with us through I'd say the 60s, 70s, um, where, you know, that's such a great kind of revolutionary moment in so many ways. You've got this great uprising of youth culture. You have this pushing against authority. You have, you know, the hippie look of the era. You know, we already talked about the unisex attire, but also this peacock revolution for men, where I'd say that's the moment in time where you get closer to the 18th century in terms of embracing kind of more vibrancy and pattern in menswear. And then it gets rejected again. You know, it's really interesting when you move into kind of late 70s, early 80s, and we become once again more wedded to these notions of pink for girls and blue for boys, which now I think we're seeing a great disruption of that as
0: well. Yeah, and and one of my actual favorite pieces in the exhibition is in that section that you were just referring to about the peacock male. And it's not from the 60s. It's not from the 70s when we see this, but it's like a, a rebirth of this. And it's a suit by the Nigerian-American designer. And tell me if I'm saying his name right, Wale Oyejide. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> and his, his, his line is called a cure Jones. Um, this suit stopped me in my tracks when I first saw it. I think it might be my favorite thing in the entire exhibition. I Actually, when I went through the exhibition, I went back to look at that again a couple times. And it's a suit from 2017. And it's dressed on a mannequin, of course. And it's a three-piece suit, but I don't think that what would usually be a vest—I don't think it's a vest. Is it a shirt? It's a shirt. Yeah, it's a shirt. Okay, so it's mm-hmm. pants, it's trousers, a shirt, and a jacket, and the suit itself is called Vines Two because it's a cotton textile, and uh, the pattern on the textile are these kind of red vines, maybe with some vegetation, uh, that are positioned on a dark burgundy background. And the pants are very tailored. They're tailored slim. They're a little too short, which is, of course, very trendy. <laughs> yes, very trendy. <laughs> um, and the jacket is tailored what you could consider maybe a little too loose at the waist. It's almost like a sack coat, right? And around the shoulders of this whole ensemble is draped a printed silk scarf. And my question for you is, what is printed on this scarf? Because I went back and looked at this a couple times and I was trying to get a better angle. But I think what's on the scarf speaks to a much broader message that Wale is trying to communicate.
2: Yes, for sure. So
0: Wale um, uh
2: so his tailoring firm that he started is called Akira Jones. And I became aware of his work through a book called Dandelions, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's fabulous. Um, Yeah. So, and that book is really about um, both African and African-American designers and wearers who are really embracing the idea of color and pattern in menswear. And there has been this tradition of it, you know, you think about the Congolese sapoos in Africa. um,
0: We want to do an episode. I want to do a whole episode. So
2: that would be fabulous. So yeah, so you know, embracing this whole notion of, you know, more color in menswear. And so I saw his work and I thought, and he's he's based in Philadelphia and he is a musician, turned lawyer, turned Designer slash activist, his his kind of trajectory is really amazing, and he really want he embraces this notion of uh, clothing as an expression of social messages and how clothing can really be embedded with these ideas of social justice. Um, so I love what he's doing because he basically melds Western tailoring with fabrics and patterns inspired by the African diaspora and really wants to delve a little bit more deeply in what that can mean when a wearer puts it on their body. So he works with this tailor Samuel Hubler, um, who does the actual tailoring. The scarves are these really large scale, beautiful silk scarves that have traditional imagery from Western art history. And then he inserts African faces and figures within them. Uh, So I think of him personally as the Kahinda Wiley of the fashion world, because, you know, he's really kind of challenging our notion of what, you know, what has formed our histories. Where do these ideas come from and how do we kind of embrace that and express more with the way we present ourselves in the world. And so he was great. And I think what he's doing is very much representative of this great uh, explosion of creativity and menswear more generally, which is why I included him in the show, along with, you know, some work by Dries Van Noten and Alessandro Michele for Gucci. So, and yeah, his work appeared in Black Panther. So I'm yes. sure a lot of people
0: have seen that. <laughs> so, and and the way that it's actually draped on the ensemble is a reference to the way in which Maasai men wear yes. textiles, mm-hmm. right? Yes. I, I got sure. that immediately. That was the first thing that piqued my interest. I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the scarf
2: itself is, you know, called, it's the St. Michael de Maasai scarf. Mm-hmm. So again, this whole idea of like mixing up the Western tailored look with something that has roots elsewhere in Africa is really quite compelling.
0: More from Michelle right after this quick word from our sponsors. Michelle, I think it's a really interesting moment right now in history when we're starting to see some of these cultural constructions about the gendering of clothing. They're starting to, like, come crashing down. Mm -hmm. So, for the transgender and gender fluid communities, clothing has always been and continues to be this really powerful element in the expression of identity. You know, expressing one's truth, and as the studies that you and I spoke about earlier, we're seeing this increasing number of this younger generation embracing gender identities that are outside of this binary of strictly male and strictly female. You know, like I said before, your, your terminology in the exhibition was great. You know, you define agender, you define genderqueer, you define non-binary, you define gender fluid. And... What role do you think social media has played in this increasing diversity of expression of gender that we're seeing in the current moment? You you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. Um but but I want to ask you um about that and also how do we see this playing out in terms of contemporary fashion? So um I think
2: that I wouldn't be doing this exhibition right now if it weren't for social media <laughs> because I do feel what it has allowed is a platform for people who have really traditionally have had a harder time finding their communities and so it has opened up this world where you can find your comfort level you can express yourself really truthfully and find like-minded people out there in the world and so it really has transformed so much of the way this younger generation approaches ideas of gender and the way they express it. And I think that one of my favorite aspects of the exhibition is uh, we have something that's called The Digital Album. Mm, I loved it. Oh, I'm so glad. It was really, again, like one of those projects that came together so beautifully. And um, we did, we reached out to Bostonians who would present themselves as gender nonconforming, non-binary, you know, had a way of mixing it up that was really unique. And so we did a social media call to action and got wonderful entries, wonderful images, wonderful stories from people who really, um, you know, a lot of the stories are quite, uh, some of them are a little bit difficult to read. You know, they've never really, it took them a long time to kind of find who they were and be comfortable with who they were. But now they're there, and they're very proud of who they are, and they're showing that through dress. Um, And so we uh, narrowed it down to ten people. Um, It was actually inspired by a young man who was working in my local bakery in Salem, Mass. And I walked into this bakery one day, and I I loved what he had on. And he had on this vintage woman's metallic lamé sweater, and he had on a rhinestone necklace, and a camouflage hat, and an earring, and you know, you couldn't look at him and pinpoint exactly what gender he was embracing. You know, it was really this wonderful kind of mixing and melding of all these different influences. And so he really inspired this idea of the digital album. And then we did this call to action, and we got these submissions, and we narrowed it down Mm -hmm. to 10. Um, We had a committee kind of On staff, And then we reached out to some of the designers in the show and they weighed in because it was really hard to narrow down. Everyone had a compelling story and a great picture. Um, And then we hired a local photographer named Ali Schmalling, who was actually in the midst of a non-binary portrait series. And so she did the photography for us and it's become a very integral part. Really, of the contemporary story within the exhibition.
0: Yeah, and it's um presented almost like a video installation, like as an art piece within the exhibition. I I really liked it a lot.
2: Yeah, we were. I was really thrilled that our IT department was able to find beautiful 4K screens. So, and then our special, our creative department did just an amazing job with designing it. Um, And we do have a space outside of the exhibition, it's a a separate gallery space that's called the Gender and Fashion Think Space. And Mm -hmm. we have more resources, um, books for people to read. We have a response section where people can leave post its with their thoughts about the show. Um, And we have the digital album there on large screens and you can kind of get more information about each participant and more imagery
0: we're going to take a quick sponsor break here but more with michelle in a moment do you have some favorite designers who are currently creating unisex or or gender-free collections
2: yeah, I have plenty. Uh, so, the last room of the exhibition is called Transcend, and it's focused on four different contemporary designers whose work really transcends uh, binary understandings of the gendered body. So, one of them is Anbita Sharma, who's based in India, and she has a studio called 2.2 Studio. Her motto is A gender is the new gender. And so, she creates garments that have kind of melded tailoring with what she calls kind of quote unquote more feminine styling so she has some really beautiful sheer fabrics and some embroidery but then kind of these checked more tailored looks Um, and then does these garments that kind of have more volume so they can fit on a wider range of bodies and that they're not specifically tailored to fit a woman's form or a man's form so um, she's one of my favorites she's doing really beautiful work uh, in India which is probably not an easy place to do this kind of work. We have Fabio Costa of Not Equal, who was a Project Runway participant and who makes clothing that can be worn interchangeably by men and women. And it really has a lot of adjustable parts. Um, One of the things that I find really important about what young designers are doing is they're really embracing body diversity. And some of the designers in this section of the show really... It's a very key part of how they approach design. So it can be adjustable to different body shapes and types, no matter what your gender. So, and then we also have in there Rod Harani, who is a Canadian, Jordanian, Syrian designer who has a very kind of futuristic view of what unisex clothing can be. He was the first designer to be officially invited to the Paris Couture to show a unisex collection. So this, you know, very high end, um, minimalist, um, but beautifully constructed and very kind of futuristic in its approach. But he studied human anatomy for a year before he started designing clothes because he really wanted to come up with a new sizing system that would embrace a more non-gendered body. Um, So those are some of my favorites. Um, There's a lot more, (laughs) there are a lot more and it was actually very hard to narrow down. We also have Palomo of Spain in there. His work is spectacularly beautiful. Uh, He, I think often references, he goes back to maybe the 18th century or the 1960s, 70s Peacock Revolution and the way he approaches menswear and shows just beauty and color and really wants to embrace this notion of kind of joy and optimism in menswear, although he really thinks of it as clothing that can be worn by anybody.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned uh, fit, because I think that is kind of one of the key crux points of like, where are we going to go in this moment moving forward in terms of like unisex or gender-free clothing is fit. Fit is a huge question mark, right? Huge question mark. And I think that it's it's challenging for a
2: designer because when you think about what the standard training probably is, you know, it is menswear versus women's wear. Uh, that's the way designers get trained. And yet we're seeing such an erosion of those boundaries now and you know, even designers themselves are now, there's a lot more of showing of men's and women's wear together on the runway. Um, you see a breakdown in department stores happening, even in Target, for example. Um, you know, you've, you kind of see a little bit of kind of the erasing of these specific men's and women's sections, which, you know, in in truth, we've had the standard you know, jeans and a t-shirt look that's like a standard unisex look that has existed for quite a while, <laughs> you know, but, but we do see that it's becoming more of a pointed effort um, on the part of the fashion world now.
0: Yeah. So we're almost out of time, but Michelle, before we sign off, do you have any final thoughts or something that perhaps you'd like to add that we haven't already touched on?
2: Sure. Um, So in the exhibition, I have a really fantastic suit designed by Victor and Ralph for Tilda Swinton. (gasps) Oh, that was one of my other favorite pieces. It's a great piece. And it's like one of their iconic pieces. And it's, you know, the multi-collared, like rough, like kind of extreme version of the woman's power suit is how I fit. And Tilda Swinton, of course, is, you know, known for her androgynous style both on and off the screen. And Victor and Rolf were so inspired by that, they did a whole collection called One Woman Show inspired by her very distinctive style. And for the show, she actually composed a poem that was recited as the models walked down the runway. So I thought I'd just maybe end with reading a few of those lines. Yes. Okay. So um, separate the signal from the noise, hear your own ears, cut the strings, be yourself, only you, walk, follow your own path, listen to your limbs, walk. Are there others watching you? Who knows? Who cares? There's only one you, only one. So I just thought that really captured a lot of the spirit of a lot of the individuals in the exhibition, both the wearers and the designers, and how they're really approaching and rethinking fashion beyond the binary.
0: Yeah, no, I loved that. And and you referenced like the silhouette as almost like a rough, but if you look closely at it, what it is, is it's like multiple layers of kind of menswear shirts that are comprising that silhouette. And it's just really fantastic. So Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today and for the gift of this terrific exhibition. It was very eye-opening. And I think a lot of people are going to be very into this episode. So thank you so much.
2: I am delighted to be here and thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah. Michelle, I would just like to say a huge congratulations on your exhibition. Everyone has really said such great things about it. And listeners, you still actually have time to catch it as well because it will be on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston until August 25th, two thousand nineteen.
0: Yes, please do. I mean, the exhibition provides some serious food for thought and and casts on just like another suggestion from an entertainment standpoint – I recently discovered the 2016 web series, The Gay and Wondrous Life of Caleb Gallo, which is on YouTube. <laughs> and one of his main characters, Freckle, who is played by the gender fluid actor Jason Green, who also goes by Freckle, um, is amazing. And to say that I am smitten with Freckle is a bit of an understatement I think you already know this (laughs) Um, they are hysterically funny they have amazing comedic timing they're very charming and I think that Freckle and I should be friends so if you're out there listening
1: Auntie Freck next time you're in NYC call me well that does it for us this week dress listeners we hope you ponder on some of these issues of gender as they pertain to the clothing in your closet next time you get dressed Please be sure to tune in to Thursday's fashion history mini-sode where we answer your questions. If you'd like to write to us with a question for an upcoming mini-sode, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com or you can direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle and you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Have you heard us
0: mention our June 2020 dressed group trip to Paris yet? We will be taking our listeners who join us to fashion exhibitions, archives, auctions, flea markets, and so much more. So if you would like to register your interest to receive updates, um, please visit LikeMindsTravel.com, and there will be more information about this coming soon. And last but not least, thank you very much to our producers, as always, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you Thursday!
1: Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.